listening to Okay, this is a new episode, and uh, I want to welcome back Luke Ford. And uh, I think he was on top, I don't know, a year and a half ago, right, Luke? Um, yeah. I, I think you did it, and I'm very happy that you're, you're doing it again. And I, I know there's a couple of subjects that you really want to talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, get in, we'll get into uh, in detail, and I'm very comfortable with the subject matter. I don't know how comfortable <laughs> some of the listeners will be, but um, um, so thanks for doing it again, Luke. And um, how how would I describe you know if if someone's listening to this for the first time or hearing you for the first time, how would I describe your background? Like I know you were at one point uh, influential blogger and in adult entertainment, but you're also a thinker, uh, philosopher, and obviously you you, uh, you take religion uh, very seriously and. Um, I, I do I, I would say out of all things I think you're a pretty principled guy you do believe on set, sets of belief strongly and uh, we are also friends with uh, our our great mutual friend Joy Kurtzman so um, yeah I think you'd describe me to someone who's never encountered me before as uh, as a narcissist like I'm someone who's like got this big hole inside mm -hmm. and it's always trying to fill it and someone who's like thrown himself into religion and thrown himself into exploring the world of pornography and thrown himself into 10 years of psychotherapy mm -hmm. now thrown himself into three years of 12-step programs uh, threw himself into two years of yoga uh, th threw himself into training to become a teacher of the Alexander Technique and and it's all this attempt to kind of stave off this underlying depression that I that I struggle with and try to like keep it at bay and and try to um, perhaps some of the time is to distract myself from it. I remember I had a therapist who said, "Make sure you put the mic closer to you." Do yeah. you think everything you're mm -hmm. doing is is trying to distract yourself from your underlying depression? And that wasn't an easy thing to hear when I heard that in 2009, but I, I, I recognized the truth of it. So the manifestations of that struggle to distract or to keep at bay my underlying depression changed dramatically. So for many years, I wrote about the pornography industry. And yeah. For many years now, I've written about Orthodox Judaism. I've, I've written about controversial issues such as race and eroticized rage and 12-step programs and psychotherapy and... And you know, I've gone through a lot of changes because I'm always <coughs> trying to kind of fend off the darkness inside. Okay, uh, I, I wasn't really planning to talk about. <laughs> I, I wasn't planning to talk about it. But w what was your first reaction when you heard Robin Williams uh, passed away? I, I saw there goes an, another addict. Uh, that was my reaction when Tony Scott jumped off the bridge. Uh, if you if you read books on Hollywood, this was someone who was you know notorious for. 
the way he would exploit his position to to uh, you know get with was a lot of suff- women. W- w- was Tony Scott suffering from depression too? I didn't. I didn't. I, don't w- I I see him from from what I read about him. He seems to have all the symptoms of a sex addict. I see. And so Robin Williams, of course, is a struggle with drugs and alcohol th- throughout his life. Um, who was the other one? Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman sure. died of an accidental, <clears throat> perhaps heroin overdose. Another addict. So I recognize in all these people um, an addiction and emptiness inside. Even more frighteningly, I recognize that same eroticized rage in that Santa Barbara killer, the guy who'd never had sex with a woman and went out and mowed down a bunch of people. You know, look, it, it's all. I'm not. I don't want to say it's funny that you mention it, but I, I have to say, when I, uh, before we recorded this, I, I told you we visit one of our mutual friend up in San Luis Obispo. But as I was driving up there, I stopped by uh, uh, that uh, Visla Island. Uh, Isla is Vista. Yeah, that basically where um, Elliot Roger yeah. shot all those mm-hmm. people. So, mm-hmm. so I. Took a break. It's 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 a it's about an hour and twenty minute drive from LA, and I still had another hour and forty minutes, two hours mm-hmm. after that. But I took a break. I went there, and this is absolutely worst possible place you could have sent someone like that. Because what I gathered from what little I read about him, um, wouldn't be surprised if he probably had a, like autism or Asperger or something. He probably had a hard time interacting socially with mm-hmm. people. So. Um, let me be just be graphic. Why imp- I, I just pretend like I was exchange graduate student, kind of mm-hmm. ma- hanging out. This like eleven midnight last um, <clears throat> Friday night, and it was hundreds and hundreds of kids having good time. They're drunk. And UC Santa Barbara is a very good school. You you have a lot of attractive women running around, and I w- I would imagine. If you, if you had an issue with masculinity and if you if you had an issue of uh, difficulty interacting with people, that's got to be very difficult to walk around seeing so many attractive women and you weren't able to talk to them, you know. And I went to Evergreen State College, which is a hippie school in Olympia, Washington. We, we don't have a Greek system. Um, a lot of girls out of their way to make themselves less attractive because of feminist issue or whatnot. Perhaps he would have been better off going to campus like that, but he he was just at the wrong place, absolutely, you know. And uh, um, yeah, so I, I was there. I mean, look, you could literally smell vagina just running around those neighborhoods, you know, just these young, vibrant girls running around, drunk and having good time. And I could only imagine him getting angry. Only thing he smelled was de- his own desperation, I think, you know. Yeah. But I used these words like, Depression, attic, but like I don't really meet know what it really means. I kind of like. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I like. I, yeah, because neither of us are mental health professionals, and so <coughs> w- what we're using words for to to try to get at a reality of, of desperation mm-hmm. and darkness inside, and uh, feels like a hole inside of yourself for for an addict. Yeah. That's what it feels like, and that you've got to get a fix. And for some people, that would mean gambling. For other people, it would mean eating. For other people, it would mean spending. For others, sex. For other people, masturbation. 
other people drugs and alcohol well, what's the connection with that with depression like what why de- depression well not all not all depressed people are addicts mm-hmm. but all addicts are would struggle with depression because if you're basically happy you don't you're not so desperate for your fix you know if you're fundamentally okay with yourself you're not desperate for a fix and so people who are ill at ease with themselves increasingly turn to something outside themselves to fix that lack of ease and so that's the making of an addict and uh, also someone who's ill at ease with themselves and with other people is inevitably going to be depressed so here's a better uh, dilemma for me because um if you're a sex addict and you you're decide to go to adult entertainment, you could kind of fool yourself thinking, this is my profession. And if you're a professional gambler good at it, you know what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. Like, people don't think you have a problem because you're right. actually being successful at it. Right. So what happened to those people in, in those two professions if they're good at it and successful? Well, you can be a high-functioning addict ah. so that... Let's just say you're a work addict. Yeah. You know, that's a really respectable thing. Like to work excessively is a high status thing in our right. peer group. In middle class and above, to work sixty hours a week is a high status thing. So let's say there are people let's say there's someone who's sixty years old. Yeah. And they have averaged <coughs> over sixty hours a week working sure. since they were twenty. Okay. That person's probably uh, a millionaire. Um, they probably hold a prestigious position in their community sure. and among their peer group. Um, they may be a major philanthropist. They may be just widely respected and everyone looks up to them. But so they're on the one hand, they're high functioning and that's you know probably the most productive addiction that, you know, that you can have because sure. you, let's presume that you're doing something that's legal and therefore you're, you're benefiting benefiting society because you're, you're developing yeah. legal products that, that help people, legal services. But this is someone who is missing out on life because by being a work addict, it narrows their options. So they're so tired when they're not working, they don't have to worry about anything else. So let's say they're socially awkward. Sure. Um, they don't have to confront that because they're working so much. And when they work, they have a, a set position for how they interact with other people so they don't have to get into like the messiness of life it limits their interpersonal relationships with their family and their friends because they're working so much they don't have to deal with that mess and it limits how much they have to look at themselves they can distract themselves by working themselves to exhaustion so this is someone who's not happy you know because they're using work to hold the darkness at bay and and ostensibly uh, this looks like a you know a high achieving and a great person. I I think I caught myself in that because that's a pretty uh, common thing among uh, Asian and Asian American families, and uh, many many people rather work than deal with their own problem. I've said this many many times, and I th- I think it's true. In fact, in Japan, they, there's a term called karoshi. Uh, literally means uh, work death. Like these people work themselves to death, and like uh, it's it's like a common thing happening in Japan, where it's a industry uh, hazard, you know. And um, um, I think 
many Asian parents passive aggressively put a lot of guilt on their kids. Like, look, I'm making all the sacrifice working for this. You have to really, really work hard in school. But the one thing they don't work on is try to live a happy, meaningful life, you know. And that's just, um, that's how it is. With yeah, them. and let's look at the, the children of, of someone like that. This will usually be someone who, who sets very high standards for the kids mm -hmm. and uh, continually makes them feel or lets them know even if it's not with, even if it is without words, lets them know that they're not good enough, that they're not sure. living up to his standards. <laughs> so this is these are kids who grow up feeling worthless inside, that their only worth is in what they can achieve. Sure. So these are not people who tend to have good stable relationships. These are not people who are at peace with themselves, and uh, these are people prone to addiction. And they may not go into a relatively healthy form of addiction, such as work addiction, which is yeah. about as healthy as you can get for an addiction. And so, you know, th these people, uh, you know, that's that that's me. You know, I grew up the son of a very high achiever, uh, someone, you know, who, who set very lofty standards, and I always felt like I was failing and not living up to them, and that I was a, a worthless person, that I was bad. I still got that, you know, fundamental feeling that I'm a bad person. And you, you, you also, also your father was a very uh, big community leader, right? And, because what was it? It's preacher that proper yeah, term. Yeah, so, yeah, Seventh Day Adventist preacher. And he was a, I mean, big man. Yeah, right? very, very highly respected. Yeah, and um, but you, you know that that I don't even know. I don't want to say it's a joke, but like, how often do we meet somebody in the adult business, women? And they, they come from very religious, strong religious background, or the fact the father was a minister or whatnot. It just seemed like, is, is, was that a stereotype, or do you think there's some truth in that? Uh, there, there may be something to that, but I think the overwhelming characteristic of people in the adult business is a lack of ties. So it means they have a lack of connection to their ethnic group. Mm -hmm. These are not normally, say, leaders in the Korean community, or yeah. even in the Latino community, or the black community, or the Jewish community. These aren't people strongly tied to an ethnic group. These are also not people strongly tied to a religion who get into the adult industry. Also, it's not people strongly tied to their community of any type. Also, it tends not to be people who are strongly tied to their family. Like people who are close to their mother and father and to their brothers and sisters don't tend to get into the adult industry. Right. And also people... Well, you're pretty much describing me. Yeah. Yeah, and also people who don't have really strong ties to, you know, friends, because generally speaking, if you have close friends, very few people want to see their friends become hookers or pimps. Right. And those are the, the only two categories of people in the adult industry. You're either a pimp or a hooker, and very few people who care about others want that for the people they love sure so people who get into the adult industry are overwhelmingly people who feel unloved and don't know how to connect normally and so this is the way they fill that hole by you know chasing attention or by chasing you know sexuality that's the way they've learned to channel their desperation to be loved because you said something um, in the episode on my podcast, Eroticized Rage, you, you said something that uh, I've really never thought about before, which was pornography. What, what did you say? It's a force intimacy, or what, what, did, you, what did you call it? Uh, oh, uh, pornography addictions and intimacy disorder. Yeah. So I'd say everyone that I, I meet in the adult industry that I met, and I was in and around it for 12 years, almost everyone had an intimacy disorder. 
So I mean, means, basically lack of, right? Yeah, it means an inability to connect. Mm-hmm. In informal uh, psychological term, it would be called an attachment disorder. They didn't haven't learned to attach to other people. And so that leaves you feeling horrible and you then seek outside of yourself things that stop yourself feeling horrible. Yeah. And so for many of the people in the adult industry, it's obviously sex or a particular form of sex, you know, that makes them feel good or uh, just, you know, earning, earning money if they're uh, particularly, say, a predatory businessman. And yeah, and let's be honest, it is a pretty predatory business. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, when you've got a business filled with virtually everyone in it has an attachment disorder, um, that does not make for stability yeah. and, and, and courtesy. Well, you know, as you know, I used to work for Evil Angel. I got fired from there. But I, I, this is what, what I always say to my friends, and a couple of people laugh, which is Evil Angel is owned by a guy named... John Stelliano, but his stage name, as you know, is Buttman. And I right. used to tell people, like, well, if you ended up working for a guy named Buttman, you made some bad decisions in your life because nobody, like, planned to go into yeah. the business, I don't think. Yeah. So my biggest resentment when I got fired, uh, not just getting fired, but uh, for them to act like they're running a pristine organization, like, what, what, what can't you see for what it is, the way I saw it? Like, we're all in this business because made bad decision but also there's some defect in all of us you know i, I just yeah, I yeah. Mean, maybe, there's maybe a couple of people like they're just looking for jobs but for most part even adam grayson who's the new gm for uh, evil angel he went to yale or some i mean ucla whatever graduate school yeah you have mba or whatnot and you're really well educated i'm sure you come from a good family but you ended up being a dope business yeah obviously there's some Something, something broken, yeah. yeah. Something broken. So inside. that's why when we pretend like we're a professional and a classy organization, like, give me a break, you know. Right. We ended up in adult business because for most of us, I think you described it correctly, there, there really is some emptiness to us, you know. And um, uh, People who's never worked in the business always ask me, like, wow, that's got to be fun, all the women and things like that. But anyone who work in this business long enough to know that I'm not gonna lie. There are some po- fun part, but there are a lot of fun parts. But almost everyone you see decaying before your eyes, yeah, rapidly. Not everyone, you know. I'm not gonna say 100. No. percent Some people, you know, look like they're thriving in it. Yeah. You know, some people, you know, they they do have a glow of health. Yeah. And so I'm not gonna say it destroys everyone right before your eyes. Sure. But generally speaking, almost everyone you know, ages rapidly in front of your eyes, not just the talent, but people behind the scenes that, you know, the, the decay and the, the, the cruelty, the predatory nature of it just writes itself across people's faces, you know, rapidly so that you can almost tell, you know, if you're meeting someone in the industry you yeah. know, without anyone saying a word, there's just that look to them just as you can kind of tell when you meet someone who's been making their living in uh, the drug trade for say five ten years we're not suggesting that that the sex leads to that sort of lifestyle i mean you could have a healthy meaningful intimate love affair with somebody your boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or husband 
We're not we're not talking about yeah, that. Yeah, no, but when you commercialize it and sell it, sell it in that industry cuz once you get into that industry, you're dealing with other people in the industry. Right. So it multiplies the effects. So right. You see almost everyone in it aging rapidly right before your eyes. There's porn years and there's regular years. Yeah. And so not everyone is physically destroyed. You know, not everyone, you know, gets that decayed look, but it, it's it's very widespread. I remember one year when I went to Venus Fair in Berlin, I saw this very attractive, I think she was Eastern European girl, Czech or Hungarian, absolutely beautiful. Um, just there was a glow about her. I don't remember yeah. her name, but she was yeah. beautiful. I mean, yeah. perfect body, beautiful face. Then I don't know what happened to her. And like six, seven years later, she did a scene for John Leslie's movie. And I couldn't believe it was the same person. There was just yeah. like emptiness to her and believe me i'm not trying to get rid of adult business yeah i, I still believe in people who have yeah. a right to make a decision to yeah. life liberty and yeah. pursuit of happiness and if you don't yeah. pursue unhappiness you yeah. have every right to do that but but it, it is shocking that uh it's not just looking older but used like this yes, every time a woman has sex with someone it's like she loses a petal from her rose. This, you know, and I would apply this to, to regular civilian life as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems to really take a toll on women. Yeah. I don't see the same thing in men. I do see them becoming more predatory and a little more callous with every yeah. woman they have sex with. But they don't physically deteriorate. But like when, a, you know, most women, you know, that I'm acquainted with or known who've had, say, 50 lovers or more, it's taken a toll, you know, on their psyche and yeah. on their looks. Some women can, you know, pull it off and, and you don't see the damage. But generally speaking, women weren't built psychologically or just biologically to have a lot of lovers. You know, mm. women have that egg, you know, one, once a month they have an egg to, to be fertilized. They are built biologically and psychologically to bond to one person who takes sure. care of them. And the more they deviate from that uh, the more trouble they get in uh, you know there are certain like iron rules of nature just you know look what homosexuality has done to to people who have a, have a lot of uh, lovers like m- female homosexuals you know may have like three four five partners in a lifetime male homosexuals you know average well over a hundred partners in a lifetime yeah and so as soon as society in the 1970s said that it was it was okay for men to have sex with men we had you know the explosion in AIDS uh, all sorts of other STDs Um, you know men are not built to have anal sex with other men you know in in large numbers it just destroys them kills them do do you think if, if you're going to talk about homosexual lifestyle, um, I remember going to Catholic school. I remember they were just, they're basically t- was telling me obviously religious reasons why it's not good. But but my science teacher was telling me maybe it's a mother, it's a nature's way of punishing because um, believe me, you know you want to be gay, that's fine. I don't I don't really care. But the reality is things are supposed to come out of your asshole, not in. So you just. Um, I don't know, maybe you're messing too much with the nature, you know? Well, Nate, like gravity has its effect whether you're in Los Angeles or Moscow and there are like certain rules of nature that <laughs> mm. you can't break without there being severe repercussions. And 
however liberal one is on homosexuality, there are very few parents who would like their kids to grow up to be gay because they know that's not an easy life. And, and if you talk to psychotherapists, they will tell you that every single male homosexual client they've had had a horrible relationship with their father or no relationship with their father. And because they didn't get that, they then eroticize male attention because they didn't get normal male attention from their father. They eroticize male attention and that's what what but you know look look, um you know what you're suggesting is not a very popular opinion and um it's i guess controversial i think even freud probably said something like that in the same in that line um right because i'm I'm saying that it's you know it's a defect just like getting into the pornography industry probably indicates a defect just as but you do believe some people are born biologically gay right uh, I no, I, I think it's overwhelmingly a lack of uh, connection with with the father. So no, I, I don't I don't believe it. I don't I don't deny it, but I don't believe it. But you, there's certain an, there are animals practicing homosexual behavior, right? It's not like those animals had a lack of a relationship with their father, right? I mean, there in, in uh, biology, there are homosexual animals. I'm. I, I've heard that, so I. I just don't know enough on that. Mm. Um, from from what I've. I'm not. I'm known, not. Po- I'm yeah. not pointing fingers in like yeah. you know like I I. I don't have enough science back from me to say one way or another, but I just know that I remember in college people whenever they offer that idea that having difficult relation with the father, man, that backlash for saying something like that people get very very angry you know right but but if you'd said this 50 years ago there wouldn't have been that backlash no so because they believed that back right then, yeah. yeah so so you know times change there are all sorts of things that were mm. perfectly acceptable to say 40 50 years ago that are unacceptable to say now and and i generally think that uh, the things that we were saying 50 years ago that are unacceptable to say now um, that w- there was more wisdom uh, 50 years ago. For instance, uh, 50 years ago, everyone took it for granted that there were significant differences between the races. Well, we, we'll definitely cover that. <laughs> I know you want to cover that, but I mean, but I I used to also suggesting like women who are lesbians had bad relationship with their mothers. I didn't say anything about that. Okay. Well, what's and, and, you, and mm-hmm. you'll notice that the women have much different. Uh, much more f- fluid sexuality than men. Like I, I dated a woman who was, uh, who was, who was bi. She, her relationship before me was with a woman, and then she had two hookups during our time together with women. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I don't really have many thoughts on it on uh, what makes uh, women lesbian, except for it seems very highly socially determined. You know, so many women are, uh, are lesbians during college, and then you know, go go on to marry a man, and and they're even well, being a Hollywood a, star uh, who mm-hmm. said I'm a lesbian, and then you know, married a man, and, and, and so. Uh, but I mean, it it just sounds like even when I went to college, a lot of girls are experimenting stuff. So I, I you know, and, and and it just seems like female homosexuality is more acceptable than say male one. Well, yeah. it's not as wild because men are much more wild. 
And so when you put two men together, it, obviously it, there's it, more yeah. sex than say men and women. Yeah, right? there's like uh, you know there's lesbian bed, which is you know short for for no sex. Uh, so lesbians and, and, and male homosexuals are completely different. Like lesbians tend to be very political. Male homosexuals don't tend to be political. Uh, lesbians, Wait, where did you get that information? Well, well, why that's, do you? That, that's just how it is in 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 the. Uh, in the in the real world, I'll give you I'll give you a chart. There are just enormous differences um, between female homosexuals and uh, uh, male homosexuals. So that you know, female homosexuals, lesbians are much more athletic. You don't normally think of gay men as you know being terribly athletic. Um, well, you better go to West Hollywood because there's a lot of ripped. <laughs> oh, they'll work out to look good, but. <coughs> But they're not serious athletes. There's never been a great athlete that we know of. Is there in uh, um, Leganius? What's his name? The swimmer. Okay, okay I don't know anything about uh, Greg Leganius. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm talking about baseball. Oh, I see. Um, <laughs> so you know, let's you know, like picnic activity, gay male tendency, you know, would be sunbathing. Lesbian tendency would be to play football, and you know I'm quoting here from Steve Saylor, who wrote a famous essay, "Why Lesbians Aren't Gay." You know, favorite activity for for male gays, dancing. You know, for lesbians, say shooting pool. Um, you know, interest in fashion. You know, m male homosexuals have a very high interest in fashion. Lesbians don't have much of an interest in fashion. Look at, you know, look at how they dress. Uh, sense of humor gays men are very campy self-deprecating and waspy and uh, lesbian uh, humor is very satirical and political uh favorite job you know where, where do they stand out you find gay males mainly say in entertainment mm -hmm. you know for lesbians it's like pro athletes leadership drive pretty low among gay males very high among uh, lesbians uh you know what are they driven for for gay males it's attention and adoration for lesbians, it's leadership and domination. Um, basic distinctive traits, you know, for, for gay males, they're just very gay, and for lesbians, they're very resentful and angry. You know, they're just, they are about as different as you can get. Like, gay males are ravaged by AIDS, lesbians untouched by AIDS. Lesbians tend to monogamy, gay males tend to promiscuity, uh, gay males tend to have a high sexual activity level. Uh, lesbians have a very low sexual activity level. Gay males are fascinated by beauty, and uh, lesbians, you know, hate and resent male fascination with beauty. You know, gay males love pornography. Lesbians hate pornography. Uh, gay males love to have well, that, sex. Well, that, that has not been being gay. I think men just love pornography, both heterosexual and homosexual, because we're so visual. Whereas women like those psychological cues that uh, attract to them to other women, I guess. But um, um, just just going back, um, I, so if, if you're in adult business and you, there's a hole in your uh, soul or whatever you want to call it, in your heart, is, is there any hope for them? I'm like, what, what, what could they do to just get out of that? I mean, just get out of the business altogether? Okay, so there's a, let's say. You're not saying there is completely hopeless. No, definitely not hopeless. And, and it would be the same answer for someone who's a workaholic. And and the same answer for someone who's in the porn industry. So I'm not, you know, this is addicts across the spectrum. And uh, so for many people, working some sort of spiritual component will help deal with the whole. 
So a 12-step program or religion often gets people out of addiction. But you don't think some people are addicted to religion? Yeah, yeah, they, they definitely are. But, you know, often it can be, uh, let's say they replace an addiction to drugs or alcohol with an addiction to religion. That's, you know, that's a healthier move. Um, let's say someone uh, is addicted to sex and they replace it with an addiction to, uh, say, watching television. Probably be less dangerous for them, you know, watching TV than uh, chasing one-night stands. So what's that thing that, that uh, drug addicts use? They, they use methadone. So instead of using something hard, hard drugs, they use something... Right, so if you're doing something dangerous, that's yeah. imminently dangerous, it could have lifetime, you know, deadly consequences to you. Harm reduction is the first thing that we have to work on when I you see. work with an with an addict. Mm -hmm. But then we have to start looking at that broken person inside, which is an attachment disorder. So it helps to go to therapy usually and to learn what happened. And what happened is that sometime between when you were zero to two you didn't attach normally generally speaking that should be with a mother figure and so when you when you're a baby when you're an infant at that age you need a mother who both excites you and calms you someone who who helps you to connect normally yeah if you don't have that if you're traumatized or if you and it's traumatic not to have anyone that you're attached to the brain doesn't work right certain parts of the brain shut down for instance when you're in a frightening situation, you shut down basically except for your basic animal instincts. So if you grow up without a, that mother figure in your first few years or if you grow up with great trauma yeah. or sustained trauma, you very easily keep circling back to that survival mode. And you'll hear a lot of people in the pornography industry and other addicts say, I'm just in survival mode. Yeah, I was always talking to my therapist, I'm in survival mode. Because the higher parts of my brain, which if you want to talk technically, there's the limbic system and then the Pre cortex, which is the human part. And the limbic is kind of the emotions and the, and the pre-verbal memories. So because I was traumatized so much as an infant, along with many addicts, the upper, the more human portions of my brain didn't develop. Just the, that basic animal developed. So I didn't learn you know, who I am because those parts of my brain didn't develop. So you you talk <clears throat> to a therapist who becomes like a substitute parental figure and you learn to connect with your therapist and then you can take those skills out into the world and learn to connect with other people. And you can go to 12-step programs where everyone is similarly broken and has the same problem as you. So if it's sex, you can go to sex addicts, anonymous. If it's... Uh, if it's a love addiction, you go to Love Addicts Anonymous. If it's you know a alcohol, you go to AA. Yeah. And so then you've got a whole room of people who have the same problem you do, and you can connect with them because you're all working together to try to get healthier. Do, do you think uh, if you grow up not having empathy for people, do you think that's something that you could learn to have? For many people, yeah. Like you can. For those who, who cannot learn empathy, those are your uh, psychopaths. And sociopaths. And yeah. sociopaths. So I, I don't remember the distinction, but one of them can... Well, one stabs can, you 10 times, the other one stabs you for 20 times. No, one of them <laughs> can can utilize empathy to get what they want. Oh, so they're very ma manipulative. 
yeah, they can be so that they can use empathy to get what they want. But uh, people who are incapable of, of empathy, you know, that's a minority and they're, they're very dangerous. Because those predatory guys that you I met in porn, it's it's the, they just can't show empathy. And like sometimes I got criticized, like like okay, for example, a, a girl's thinking about getting into business. The people that I like, Jeff Martin and Mark Spiegler, they they will always always tell the girls, look, you do this one time, it's permanent. You really need to think on this. This is this is this is this is not something that you carelessly uh, uh, make a decision, and if you feel comfortable still knowing this, that could change your life. Go for it. Now, others get really angry when you talk to girl. You know that, that why the fuck did you say that to them? You know, you, you think it's wrong to do that? Like just tell the girls, like, look, this is a very serious decision, and you really need to think on it. You're just talking about gradations in the sewer. So, you know, obviously it's it's a good thing to try to warn someone about the consequences of doing this. But by the time someone has, you know, come to you to talk about getting into it. Yeah. And uh, and if you're already working in it, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much good that does. You know, I'm genuinely not sure. Maybe a lot of people do get frightened out by these. Yeah people who, who you know say you really should think about it um but did you did you just say like a minute ago like since you're already in the sewer is that what you said yeah okay. you're already in the sewer so you're talking about you know various flavors of the sewer mm -hmm. yeah. you're still in the sewer um just like dante's inferno you have a different levels of hell right like <laughs> yeah huh yeah i mean i you know i i don't generally I'm not sure how useful it is to think of you know good guys and bad guys in the pornography industry. It's it's like asking, you know, well, this is you know the good, the good flavor of the sewage, and this is the you know really toxic, dangerous. You know, maybe it's maybe it's useful, but it's still you would never want anyone you loved to purposefully swim around in a sewer. Yeah. I, I I'm still torn because I'm not gonna lie with you. I there's many things about it that I, I like, but well, I. Well, you're an addict. You don't. Yeah. You know, you don't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so brutal, but until you no, no, um, you address that broken hole in your soul, if if it's not the 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 pornography, you'll, you'll act out in other ways. I mean, I, I I don't really need to watch anymore. But then again, I watched so much of it. Worked in a business for a long time. It's almost like. Does this make sense? Like. Maybe I was in the business for so long that rewired my brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, pornography rewires your brain because it it fires off. Um, I'm forgetting the exact terms, but it rewires the pleasure centers in your brain. That's the definition of an addict: is when you, the pleasure centers in your brain don't work in a way that benefits you. And also, I I, I think um, it's not even that specific girl anymore. That like these young guys watching it. I mean, these kids are watching internet porn way longer than I have. So it's almost like um, the stimuli, they have to be constantly exposed to new images of the new girls, you know? Like yeah. um, it's, it's, it's a little different because when I was growing up, it wasn't that widely available. 
So I, I just wonder, like, when I, when I know 10, 11, 12-year-old kid with access with computer, laptop, iPad, cell phone, God, it, it, it's so accessible. Right, but for someone who's healthy, someone who has a basic level of connection with their parents mm -hmm. and with friends and has a community and is, is connected to either an ethnic group or a religious group or a you know professional group or a, a very specific community yeah. it's it's highly unlikely to be damaging um, they might look at it but they laugh about it and just move on right it's like the difference between rap music for white people and black people yeah generally speaking you know a white kid who listens to rap music you know while he's studying calculus he's not going to be terribly damaged by it but for for the black kid in the inner city who uh, listens to rap music and sees this as a as a guide to life because it kind of explains the world that he sees yeah and so he he goes into being a gangbanger or a, you know selling drugs or mm -hmm. living the life that is depicted in, in rap music uh, this will have a, a much more negative effect on him than if he developed a hobby of listening to classical music well, you could make arguments. Some classical music has uh, turned people into murderous people. Like Hitler was a fan of Richard Wagner, you know. Yeah, but I, but, but I understand what you're saying in general. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, Kurtzman told me one time, really interesting, why in North Korea, the dictator is so successful of controlling the country. And he was telling me, Kim Il-sun, uh, the, the father of North Korea, uh, immediately after, you know, unification, uh, well, not unification, the, uh, the creation of North Korea and right after Korean War, so many men died. Many of the kids grow without a father. So basically he became substitute for those kids. And I also wonder sometimes uh, why are black people so religious? And I, I wonder if it's the same situation with North Korea, like many of the black men then grow with their father. So they're literally replacing their father with Jesus and God as their, you know, replacement. Um, because, yeah. they're, they're, because they're very, very religious, I, I have to say, you know. Um, and yeah. may, may, maybe for these kids growing up with intimacy, um, maybe, I mean, you know, I've, I've heard rap music growing up, but it, it didn't really do anything for me, you know. But I, I guess if you don't come from stable... I think NWA even said like rap music is like black CNN. Like that's this is what happened in our community, and this is how you learn to navigate your life, and you listen to the music. I have nothing against it. It's just I don't know a lot about it. I know it frightens some white people, <laughs> and uh, yeah. <coughs> um, so, where are you as far as the intimacy things? Are you are you in a better place now? I, I think I am, but but. I mean, you went to Australia, so you saw your family first time in fourteen years, right? So yeah, so they found me easier to deal with than they've known before. So yeah, I think I'm definitely making progress, and uh, you know, my my family was happy with the ways that I've I've changed and developed, and uh, for one, that you shaved your face, so they must be really happy about that. Yeah, that, they are happy about that, and you know, I just. I just realized that at age 48 how so many of the ways that 
I've, I've lived just don't work. I, I'm humbled. I think mm-hmm. that's it. I, at age 48, I'm just like truly humbled by like the, the, the gulf between myself and my peers that I grew up with. Yeah. Like everyone else is married with kids, with a mortgage, you know what? With you, a you, career. You, you, you aged really well for a white guy. It's shocking. <laughs> I guess losing 20 pounds do that too, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, but, but like all my peers, even from Australia, they all, everyone's done better in life than I have. It, it's just, and it's so dramatic. Like the, the difference is huge. Like in your 20s, like in my 20s, I was right there with everyone else, yeah. even into my early 30s. But as every year has gone by, the gap between myself and my peers has widened. And it's what, 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 so do mean, what, what do you mean by that? Like, like financially or? Financially, every way. Yeah. They have done better in life in every way. They have, they have but spouses, are they, healthy, though? they have kids. Yeah, they're healthier than I am. Oh, it's hard to believe because you're, you're in pretty good shape. Many of my friends are married and have kids. Like they're overweight and they look stressed out, and uh, they don't look that healthy to me. Not all of them, but um, that's one thing about. Well, don't you think marriage is stressful? Oh, I, I'm sure a marriage is stressful. But as as you and I have never been married, you know that it's not being married is not good for your health. Like you know how much trouble we can get into. Yeah, you know the difference between when you're accountable to someone. But I mean, they say you, you know, when you're married, you live longer. But I could find, you know, statistically, you're probably right. But that doesn't mean the quality of life is always better in marriage either. I mean, I no, it's not always better. But I, you know, mm-hmm. I saw people who had good marriages. Like I saw sure. people when I be- went back to Australia, who'd been married for more than twenty years, and they still reach for each other. Yeah. Now they still hold hands. Um, you know, they still, you know, they really enjoy each other's company. So just imagine having something like that that you've been building for 25 years. I, and I think, I think grow, growing up in that really um, lack of uh, intimacy environment and plus working in porn business for 14 years. Because when you work in porn, you just mock marriages and intimate things, you know. You right. just think it, it's kind of crazy to do that, but... Recently, it did make me think twice because my friend Tom, when I met him first time 23 years ago, I fucking hated him. I wanted to stab him in the face because he was so rude, but he he got married really young. And I have to say, for him, it's just shocking to me. Marriage, this is a classically conservative people are correct. Like for my friend Tom, marriage was a civilizing force that really turned him to a better person, a better uh, person because... His wife made him a better person. His kids are just unbelievable. I mean, they're just they're good kids. And like, this is coming from me, who don't have a wife and kids. And I, I never really thought that that's even possible to be a happy having wife and kids. And Tom is a good example. Like, wow, you know. Yeah, I know a lot of people like that. I know like football players from high school who are just mean. Yeah. Just always <laughs> looking to start a fight, and then they got married and became Christians, and they were just so. You know, just so nice, and you know they had kids, and they just like completely changed 180 yeah. degrees to become like productive citizens, and they were delinquents in high school. Yeah, so it, it, it is shocking, and you know sometimes my friends who are married and have wife and kids will tell me like, "Wow, I wish I was single." This and that, and I, I think that's just normal. You always kind of think other sides 
are nice. Well, well I don't think there's anyone who's happily married who wishes they were single, mm -hmm. <laughs> except for you know on occasion, you know, sure. when they wish they they could screw around. But very few single guys get to screw around a lot, you know, particularly not when you get past forty. You know, unless you're incredibly rich, you know, sure. or incredibly skilled with the game. <laughs> but but generally speaking, single life is not you know a, a, a fuck fest. No, for mo mo most guys, that's why. That's why. Obviously, when you go to porn convention, most of the people attending porn convention are men, and they're in a certain age category. And um, <coughs> I guess they're trying to f uh, fill that empty loneliness, you know. Um, but look, I, I'm not gonna lie with you. Like when you're hanging out with the beautiful, young, attractive women, it's um, once again, it's rewiring your brain. I mean. It did something to my brain, that's for sure. Oh, it's fun. It's just fun hanging out with beautiful, young, attractive women. Who who doesn't love to do that? It's yeah. fun. And getting hookers, too. I mean, that that does definitely... Um, right, it's a controllable intimacy. So you can have... That's it. That's what you say, con control controllable intimacy. Controllable intimacy. You can which have is oxymoron. Which is an oxymoron, but you can have intimacy on your terms, and you can have them say the things you like <laughs> and do the things you like. And you don't have to expose the vulnerable part of yourself yeah. and, and take risks. I I think for me, it, it, everything started with porn, but like later on, especially like the last seven eight years with hookers and things like that, it's um. Like my friends tell me, like they do this sex tourism stuff, and I've done plenty of that stuff. It, it really, it's almost really difficult to go back now, because you you had so many women and like so many young attractive women that. How could you go back to one girl? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the, like that's the big downside for promiscuity for men is you know even though the decay isn't necessarily so written on your features as it yeah. is for promiscuous women, uh, it it makes it really hard to think about settling down. And you know, if it, you know, one is the magic number. Once you've had more than one woman. You know, it's really hard not to go after the races. You know, yeah. once you've tasted that variety, you know, then you can always think, ah, you know, if I only could match her breasts with her legs, with her hips, with her enthusiasm, with her personality, you know, or if this girl here, her hips were just, you know, yeah. two inches bigger or smaller and her breasts were just a little bit bigger, you know, and if only she'd do these <coughs> things that this other girl would do for me. And uh, it... <laughs> it just feeds that natural male appetite for more and more variety. And I think it's putting a lot of pressure on women too, because women know the men watch porn, and they, yeah. uh, you know, there's a huge disconnect what women think men want versus what men actually want. Like women would look at that Vogue or Cosmopolitan, all this women's magazine, thinking that men want to look women that who look like a supermodel and things like that, but. Anyone who watched porn for a long time, men are not looking for women to look like that, you know. And yeah, and it also it's, it's a mirror to the woman's psyche. So I had some women that I was with intensely insecure about their bodies and would mm -hmm. kind of harp on this that, oh, you know, you have unrealistic expectations for women's bodies. And, you know, after you've had been with so many women and seen so much porn, you know, you're going to be warped from it. Then other women were relatively secure. Yeah. Maybe they had one or two conversations like that with me, yeah. but that was it. Then they dropped it. They knew how much I wanted her. And so 
like all my relationships haven't lasted much longer than a year. Yeah. But with many women, we may have one or two conversations like that. Then it never comes up again. They know how much I want her. And she never again verbally expresses her insecurities in this area. And then other women will just bring it up again and again and again yeah. because that's who they are. They're terribly insecure. Now, you've got a confident, secure woman. She's... Uh, She's not going to be nearly as you know disturbed that you know that you've looked at porn or that you've been with a lot of women. But if it's a woman who's insecure, then that will bring out her insecurity. And, uh, and look, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but are are most women insecure, just like most men? Yeah, but there are, there are significant degrees. Mm. You know, there's and and about yeah and about their looks. You know, most women are insecure about their looks. You know, maybe all but there are really large degrees so um i don't know i've had a, a lot of relationships that lasted about a year so i really got to know the woman pretty sure. well over the course of a year and i probably had like six relationships that lasted about a year and some of the women would you know harp on a lot about their insecurity about their looks but most of the girlfriends i've had you know only did it once, twice, three times, or it was just like a particular part, you know, for one it was her legs, and for another it was her skin. Um, and uh, yeah, pretty much every woman's insecure about putting on weight, but there's, there's uh, like, like some women, if they've got a lot on the ball, like, you know, they've got <coughs> things that they're committed to, um, they've got relationships and, uh, you know, friends and community, you know, they don't have as much time to wallow in insecurity as the woman who's isolated and broken. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll say one thing, then we'll move on to uh, other subject that you want to talk about. But I, I, I have to say, I was hanging out with one of my friends. I don't want to mention their names, but my friend's girlfriend, absolutely beautiful. I mean, she's beautiful. She's almost six feet tall. She looks like younger sister of Kira Knightley. And... I had a, f I have a friend that um, I did this person a favor, so he was willing to give me a a pair of like Christian Leviton shoes, really fancy shoes. So, what am I going to do with the kind of shoes? You know, what I mean? I'm a man, I'm not going to wear it. So I asked my friend's girlfriend, "What size is your feet?" And she just kind of, I don't, I wouldn't say she upset at her, but. I'm not going to tell you about that. Like, I didn't realize women are insecure about their big feet. Like, I guess, I mean, you're you're a person six feet tall, so I would imagine your feet will be bigger. But yeah, you ju you just never know when it when it comes to women. Like, even most beautiful women, I guess there is like the weak spot, the insecure spot that every one of them have. And we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. So yeah. if you're insecure about your feet, someone asks you what size are your feet, you immediately take that as a slam, you know, on your foot. Right. For, for someone and, else who's not insecure about it, it wouldn't matter. Yeah, and and, and I didn't mean it like that. Like I was yeah. trying to get her a pair of nice expensive yeah. shoes. Yeah, you, you know? were trying to do something nice for her, but yeah. because she was so insecure, uh, she you know brought about the very thing that she didn't want. Well, she looked so perfect that I, it, it wasn't within my imagination that she felt that way. But I guess. You just can't assume about people. Just like when they kill themselves, you, you just thought, like, I thought that person was happy. You just don't know. Under the surface, 
it's kind of hard to know what's going on unless you get to know that person, you know. And um, but you can have a pretty good idea if they got a, a lot of friendships. Mm-hmm. They're very rarely, um, you know, clinically totally depressed or suicidal. You can pretty you, if they have mm-hmm. if they're bonded if they're attached and connected to other people. Um, you you've got a good you've got a really good you can really know who they are because who you're bonded to says yeah. who you are. So that I'm friends with you says something about me and that you're friends with me says something about you. Yeah. And then if you take the my the 10 people in the world who are closest to me, you know, who are not biologically related to me, you would get a pretty accurate picture of who I am. So when people do horrendous things such as uh, you know, mass murder or even committing suicide unless there's some, you know, strange health, you know, compelling health problem. Yeah. Uh no, it's not people generally who are, who are attached to others. <clears throat> do Do you think the type of people you're really close to, it's almost like a credit report? It could tell you. Yeah, what yeah, kind yeah, of- yeah. It's a credit, and a credit report, will, in my opinion, is like a ninety nine percent accurate reflection of your character. Yeah. So I'll be honest here. My credit report is not good. My credit score is six fifty five, which is below average. So. I think that reflects some some bad parts of of my character, and uh, she says my mine's a bit is lower than that too. Well, I th- I think you'd admit that you're a pretty screwed up person. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that as a judgment, but no, you know, no. you know it. I know it. Um, so, like, I had a girlfriend with a just an abysmal credit score, and she was a really screwed up person. Unless it's it's so rare that it's not even worth considering. Person's credit score. Is probably the best score to reflect their character. Yeah, someone who doesn't pay their bills is not a good person. Someone who doesn't pay their bills on time and who has chosen to live a life where they've got they save and put money aside so that when emergencies come up, they yeah. can pay for those bills <clears throat> is not a responsible person. And so, also your friends are a reflection of who you are. Like the people that you spend time with, that's who you are. I I think I've been in a pretty bad spot last uh, two years for sure. But like, if I if I'm being bluntly honest, um, it's ugh, probably from 2008 from the financial crisis. It's I've been in a bad spot. I think only saving grace I really had was um, I know you you've been very hard about yourself. But I look, I'm I'm, I'm friend of yours. I uh, I'm, I am very happy that you're my friend. Enjoy Christmas and because. That's the only saving grace I have now. The, the, the decent people, like you know, the, you're flawed. I'm flawed, but I, I like the fact that you're honest enough to be saying that, and you're actually working on it. Um, I just never really thought in that uh, light. Um, I'm 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 not really talking to David Cho right now, but he talks about addiction problem. And like I think, last three or four years, like I'm I'm 45. I'm starting thinking about that sort of thing, but I just. I guess I've been working a lot and uh, trying to take care of myself. But um, don't you find like the gap between yourself and what you expected to be or want to be, mm-hmm. or, or like the gap between you and your peers, you know, the people that you say grew up with and, yeah. and like, don't you sense that gap like growing? <laughs> yeah. And doesn't that become increasingly painful? <laughs> so, like the kind of uh, exotic life that you've lived 
is more difficult now at 45 than it was at 35. You know, at 35, it was still kind of socially okay. But if you're at 45 and still living, you know, hand to mouth, it's that much more painful. It's, 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 it's very difficult. And I don't want to make a mistake because I think this is where a lot of the comedians make the same mistake, which is um, if you hang out with successful people, you put yourself in an environment, it's, it's embarrassing because it makes you realize there's something about you that was, there's something about you that made you unsuccessful or, or, you, or you're in this bad spot. And I can't blame everyone for it. Like there, uh, there's a lot to do with me putting in this situation. Um, but some of my friends in, in comedy business, they keep hanging out with the even worse people. So like, basically what they're doing is they're hanging out with people who are way worse than they are, so they, they feel better about themselves. <laughs> I'm not. I don't want to do that because that's that's almost uh, giving up on life. So I try to attach myself with people uh, trying harder and successful, and I'm trying to change. But man, it's. I have to admit, I I think my biggest addiction is not even sex. I mean, it's a, that's a way up there. But I, I think you can be addicted to anger, and that's my biggest problem. Yeah, yeah. That. Well, in twelve-step lingo, it's resentment. Yeah. So. Like, say, the sex addiction is just the, it's just the mask. You know, whatever it is. Let's say it's alcohol or drugs yeah. or sex or work addiction or debt addiction or food addiction. These are all just the masks for what is underneath an attachment disorder mm. where you don't attach normally to other people. And then in that isolation, you, you know, you, you will get angry. There's no way you're going to yeah. be isolated and not angry. So you channel that anger into comedy and into working in the pornography industry and doing and you know doing these things that's how you channel it um but still at 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 the core you know you and i have an attachment disorder yeah and and, and you know uh, tomorrow my friend stan chan he's a comedian but he's also a pilot for fedex and stan chan's been a great great friend of mine um very supportive never been judgmental and i've been i have to say i i think that's one once again saving grace I have people like that who come from very good family and, and they're, I don't know why, well, something about me that they, they were there for me and um, um, without them, I, I would have been in even bigger trouble. But when I was hanging out with Stan Chen's family, uh, his parents in C uh, Bellevue, Washington, extremely successful people. I mean, they just put me shamed at the place they live. It's just everything about their home is like impeccable. Um, Everything's kept in really clean, nice way, and very loving and supportive. And and I think my response when I was a kid either was sense of uh, embarrassment because my family there was it was so chaotic, you know. And and uh, I mean, really, we were like yellow trash. That's what it come down to, you know. It's like people are really mean to white people with no money, but there's black trash, yellow trash. I don't know what how you call Latino being trash, but um, you know, when you see that, um, like it just makes you think, like not a resentment, but like, what, why, why did it go this way with my family, and and what's going on with them? And um, anyway, Stan tomorrow is driving his son, the youngest son, to Purdue or uh, one of the good schools in Indiana they live, um, and he's probably like five or six years older than me. But loving wife, very successful. He's doing comedy on the side, very funny. Captain, respecting military, you know. Uh, and um, I sometimes wonder, like, 
I don't know why I never had a longing for that sort of thing until recently. Like, wow, you know, it's it's. it's I guess you can have a very successful marriage and career and happiness that wasn't really imaginable to me. You know, it, it was just when I think of my family, I just think all the craziness that I had to deal with. Um. Yeah. What's that? What are you looking at right now? Oh, this is a great book. I, 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 to switch topics, I've spent about a year ago, 15, 16, 14, 15 months ago, I went on a new medication called modafinil. M-O-D-A-F-I-N-I-L. Is that antidepressant? No. It uh, it's, makes you alert. So shift workers, people with uh, sleep apnea, mm-hmm. uh, people with tendencies to narcolepsy, you know, being sleepy during the day, take it. And its nickname is the boss's best friend because mm-hmm. it makes you alert sure, and it makes you want to learn. It's really interesting. Uh, it's very much worth Googling and looking up. So I got on this medication because I've had mild to moderate sleep apnea for years. I've had trouble sleeping for many, many years. And as a result, I kind of go through the day groggy much of the time. So and I think I think uh, I already know the answer to this, but uh, not able to having a bad sleeping habit, I'm sure it has something to do with depression, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I had that all my life. Yeah. And uh, and they, uh, they they affect each other. So anyway, I, I went on this drug, and it made me want to learn. So I spent about six months, and I read everything that Steve Saylor has written. Steve Saylor, S-A-I-L-E-R. He writes a lot on what he calls human biodiversity. He, so he kind of... T- tackles topics of race right and and uh, differences between people now you might so we're going from intimacy issue to a hot, uh, another hot this is a real hot topic okay and, so you might mm. ask why not talk about everything that we have in common yeah. so let me take 15 seconds and talk about everything we have in common we all have a mouth mm-hmm. we all have a nose we all have two eyes we almost all have some hair and you're falling asleep. That's really boring. Yeah. What's interesting, so as with computer code, everything's binary. It's either right. you know, X's or O's. Uh, so too, <laughs> what's interesting in life often is what's different. Yeah. And so I just started reading Steve Saylor, and then I, I transitioned to other people. And what, what I found most important about what I read yeah. is that it reconfirmed common sense that it's become impolite to say out loud the last 50 years. Do you know that there was no use of the word racism prior to the 1930s? It was never even thought of uh, prior to then. There's no category of racism. Like in all of the religions, in all of the Bible, in all of Judaism, there is, for instance, no commandment against racism. In, In the Christian Bible, there's no commandment against racism. The greatest Christian thinkers, from Thomas Aquinas to our, uh, to uh, Augustine to to Martin Luther and John Calvin, never said anything about racism as a bad thing. It was always taken for granted throughout human history that everybody prefers people who are genetically similar to them. It's the reason why we prefer our own children to other people's kids, because mm-hmm. our own children are our seed. Right, and we're genetically close to them. We all feel more comfortable, generally speaking, with people who are genetically similar to us. 
So if you look out in society, you'll see overwhelmingly whites choose to live with whites, blacks choose <coughs> to live with blacks, orientals choose to live with orientals, and Latinos choose to live with Latinos. In their work choices, whites choose work where they can primarily be around other whites. Yeah. Blacks choose work where they can primarily be around other blacks. In their socializing, almost everyone socializes primarily with their own kind. And in their worship choices, where they go to church or synagogue, almost everyone chooses a uh, uh, house of worship that is at least 95% of their stock, of their, of their racial type. And yet we... B- because people feel comfortable with their feel, And that was always taken for granted. But in the last 50 years, suddenly we've got this use of the word racism, which wasn't only started to be used commonly in the 1960s. And now suddenly what was always taken for granted and what we see in the world around us is still taken for granted in the way people live their lives is suddenly regarded as a bad thing. And, and so I just saw this obvious truth and I've, I've always kind of seen it, but I haven't hopped on it very much in my writing because it immediately makes you persona non grata if you just point this out. In other words, people think you're racist. People think you're racist, mm-hmm. which is a horrible thing. And, and you cannot have a public career if, if you're racist. But throughout human history and in the way people choose their lives, they choose their lives on the basis of race in large part. That's the way they will mouth these platitudes about how wonderful diversity is mm-hmm. and how you shouldn't be racist. And they'll always say, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, and racism is bad. But everyone will choose to, to hang out with their own kind overwhelmingly. And the more they have to, against their will, hang out with people who are genetically different from them, the more unhappy they get. People don't like it. Yeah, if you go college campus and high school campus, most of the time kids usually kind of hang out in their group, generally speaking. Very much I like particularly blacks. You know, blacks now increasingly have their own dormitories, their own graduation ceremonies. Mm-hmm. They want to hang out with fellow blacks. And in a black Funny day, you say that because when I went to medical lab, most of the black people want to hang out with the black people and the whites. Unfortunately, I was one or two only uh, Asians, so... Basically, they put me in a room with lighter skin people. But yes, but it's true. But 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 yeah, it's true. Oh, prison, especially particularly like prison is like a distillation. Your survival of depends life. on it. Your survival depends on your survival depends on it too. Outside of prison, to a lesser degree. But I I rode public transport in L.A. for the first time on um, on the bus to the airport to go mm. to Australia because I used to have more money and so I'd always take a taxi because I did not want to run go on public transportation because there are too many blacks and Latinos and I didn't feel safe. It was just, it just made me uncomfortable. <clears throat> so I rode the bus for the first time and it was filled with blacks and Latinos and I would look around and when there was a white person, I would feel some sense of solidarity that like if things got bad, you know, we would team up together. So if but you, you don't, don't think, want, you don't think this is like uh, paranoia? Not at all. It's the way, it's the way, look how everyone chooses to live their life. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no large number of people that chooses to, to live in black neighborhoods who aren't black. Wait, it's but, almost unfathomable. But, but, but uh, look, can I ask you something? Um, and I, I, I'm very comfortable with everything you're saying. Um, but wh- why did you go from that when we talk intimacy to the race thing? Like, wh- what's the thinking there? Well, we've been going for an hour, and I wanted to talk about race. Okay, so, okay. So, you know, I talked about everything else for an hour, and then I said, "Okay." Oh no! Wh- also, what 
brought it up is that I put up a, a book called uh, Race, Evolution, and Behavior by J. Philippe Rushton. And you asked me, what's this book that I just put up on mm-hmm. my computer? So that also like shifted the conversation. Yeah. Uh, so, but let's, let's talk about addiction. It's not evenly distributed among the races. Like Orientals are not as prone to alcoholism as other races. Uh, gambling for sure is up there with Asians. Um, right, but the 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 more uh, drug addiction uh, is just as you think empirically uh, from from your own life experience. Um, blacks are much more likely to be addicted to drugs or to alcohol, and uh, to to behave criminally um, to to get the money to feed those addictions than whites, and whites are more likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol and to behave criminally than Orientals. Like there, like social pathologies, um, say such as to commit crime, is not evenly distributed. Whites are much more likely to commit crime than Orientals, and by Oriental I mean East Asian, meaning people of stock going back to either Korea, Japan, or, or China. But, but, uh, these but, are but, obvious differences. But you don't think some of them have to do with the fact that, you know, uh, I'm not a bleeding heart liberal, but I'm, let me let me be a, a devil's advocate. Is it possible that if you're growing up in a neighborhood where lack of opportunity and you're put in a position where that's the f- one of the few a- options you have in life, you, that doesn't factor in? I don't think it's, uh, it's a major factor, but it's, it's so easy to test it. <laughs> like take the, all these immigrants, say, from mm-hmm. Vietnam who came over here with nothing. You know, came here over to the United States. You yeah. know, floated out from Vietnam on matchstick rafts. You know, and they came here with nothing. And their kids are now at UCLA and USC and high, I, and I, high achieving. I, I'm 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 very familiar with that too. But like, and Afri- Af- mm-hmm. blacks who have been here for eight generations in the United States and are still at the bottom rung in the socioeconomic. Uh, factor like you take Latinos, three, four, five, six generations of. Let's say Latinos have been here for four generations. Their odds of graduating high school are fifty percent. But can can, can I uh, comment on the Asian Americans immigrating here? Um, where they're from, they didn't experience slavery, so they don't have a history of families getting breaking broke down. And um, is it possible that because we had hundreds of years of slavery in this country, that the whole so-called foundation of family? The notion of a family structure has been broken, so they don't have that. So, if you brought a group of people from Asia that have a strong background come here, I would I would imagine they would have an easier time than say the black people who didn't grow up in that structure. I mean, isn't that possible? That, 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 sure, that, it's that, possible. That, that's can, a fact. You can that, test it. Mm-hmm. You can just think about it with with the. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to be just. Sense. I'm trying to be fair because I, I think what you're saying there's a truth in that. But I also think, um, look at my example. I'm friend with my friend Fred. He's black, and then their family structure was unbelievable. He never missed one day of school, and every one of them, like one went to Brown, one went, one works for Microsoft, other ones like a high executive for Fujitsu. Fred is master's degree this and that, and. His sister is a professor at Purdue. Um, maybe in your eye, this exception to the rule, but like I'm Asian-American, you would think we have a strong family structure, but I, I didn't, you know, so. Um, um, Anecdotes don't help 
there are, there are exceptions. Of course, there are, mm. there are exceptions. You, I think the black people. What, what, I, I, I think. I think. I'm sure what you're saying is based on uh, statistics and things like that. I. I just think some black people. Uh, I guess maybe what you're saying hurt their feelings because maybe you know. Um, uh, but why are no whites having their feelings hurt when I point out they're much more criminal than Orientals? Why aren't whites' feelings hurt when I point out they have lower IQs than Orientals? Why aren't whites' feelings hurt when I point out mm -hmm. they earn less money per hour? Why aren't whites' feelings hurt when I point out that they have lower credit scores on average than yeah. Orientals? Why aren't whites' feelings hurt when I point out they have lower academic achievement than Orientals? <clears throat> why aren't whites' feelings hurt when I point out they have less family stability than Orientals? Yeah. Why aren't whites' feelings hurt when I point out they have lower lifespans than Orientals? So. Um, I don't think we need to, like, uh, like you know, protect blacks as you know, as some you know pathetic group that we need to like constantly watch out for them in case we ever say anything that's insensitive. I think blacks have phenomenal talents where, on average, they far exceed every other racial group. They have their own strengths. Every people, every yeah. race has their strengths and their weaknesses and I don't think we need to soft pedal obvious truths to <coughs> particularly protect blacks that's the way most people when it comes to if, racial if, differences if, they get oh but we got to be you know really protective of if, blacks. If, um, if, if I may um, I think some Asian American get uh, uncomfortable because um, let me give you an example some people liberal people found Ronald Reagan's social policies were harsh, and it was not good for uh, minorities in the 80s. And the conservatives' arguments like, look, Asian American has done all these wonderful things. It just shows like you don't have to throw all the money in education. And I think some black people find, feel resentful that um, because Asians did well, that necessary funding for education and things like that are not provided for everyone. Um, and it could be that Asians uh, do really well, but I, th I think um, growing up, I know that Asians think to be afraid of shame, and um, many of them with problems will not go public. So you have this illusion like every, or most of the Asian Americans are very successful without any problem, but there are problems in Asian American culture. It's just they're just hiding it. They just don't want people to know. They're embarrassed to be seen outside of the norm because the stereotypical of Asian Americans, well-educated, very successful, close family. And uh, um, I, I do think my family, including other um, poorly educated Asian Americans, I think we're just hiding the fact. Right, and Asians hate discussion of racial differences because it, it shines a spotlight on how achieving they are and they know that that will breed resentment. And so are, they'd and rather and we didn't talk mm. about any of the things we're just talking about because they fear that it will we'll breed resentment and also because Orientals are the most cautious of all the groups. And so you see this when they drive down the street. They drive very carefully. They're also more careful in who they have sex with. Mm -hmm. They're also more careful about STDs. <clears throat> They're more careful about family stability. They're more careful in the choices they make in their investments and in spending so they have higher credit scores. So, and the Orientals are more cautious about provoking people. And they're, they're, they're more likely to try to smooth things over, and they hate discussion of these racial differences. Yeah, and, and um, it, it, I, I, if I have to categorize myself with the whole group, we're in a weirdly really weird spot because if it wasn't for 
the blacks and Latinos. And of course, there was a good chunk of Jewish Americans supported the civil rights movement. And because of that, from six, 50s and 60s, um, Asian American benefit from the affirmative action. We did. So here we're a group that benefited from affirmative action in the beginning, for sure. But yet we didn't take the beatings. You know what I mean? Like we, <laughs> we benefit from their suffering. So, um, so look, when it comes to affirmative action and, and all these moral questions, whites always have to frame these questions in universal moral absolutes mm -hmm. so that what they say has to you know, stand up to Kantian ethics, while Orientals and all other groups, including Jews, have no problem asking primarily what's good for my group. So when Orientals oppose affirmative action, it's primarily on the basis of this will hurt our admission to the elite universities. Uh, uh, They're not concerned <laughs> about these wider issues on how it affects everyone else. Blacks ask, you know, what's good for, for blacks? Latinos ask, what's good for Latinos? <laughs> Jews ask, what's good for Jews? Whites, the only people who are always expected to ask and almost always talk about these things in universal Kantian ethics. But um, I, I, but as far as age, Asian Americans, I, I think there's a little you have you have to kind of break into different subgroups within it. That's why I talk about Orientals. Yeah, yeah. that means East Asians, um, people from the Philippines, aren't particularly smart on average. Well, I'm not going to make comments on that, but I, I, but I, I will say this much: um, mostly South uh, the Koreans and the Vietnamese. A uh, pretty big chunk of them are Republicans. They, uh, they, um, uh, they'll do whatever's in their group's interest. Sure, but they're I, not concerned I, about America. They're concerned about what's good for Vietnamese and what's good for Chinese. Even if they they've lived here for two or three generations, they still primarily see themselves as members of tribes. I, I think that a lot of them see themselves as socially conservative. But here's the ironic thing about Japanese American: even though FDR and Democrats put them in internment camp, most of the Japanese Americans are Democrats. They vote Democrat, and they don't have a problem with affirmative action. Partly because what they suffered during World War II. Japanese American tend to be the most assimilated group, and also they, out of all the Asian group, have tendency to marry outside of their race. It's because their grandparents and uh, parents and grandparents put this idea is they have to be less Japanese as possible. Um, so I, I think Japanese American tend to be have no problem with affirmative action. But you're absolutely true. Uh, for uh, Vietnamese and Korean tend to be more Republican conservative, and they're definitely against affirmative action, especially uh, regarding to getting to higher uh, secondary education, college, and universities. And it, it it burns them up tremendously if they can't get into Stanford or MIT or Harvard because there's just too many Asian Americans. I mean, you go UC Irvine. I I call UC Irvine Chinatown because fifty almost fifty percent of uh, students in UC Irvine is like Asian American. And that includes East Indians, uh, Pakistani, and East Indian, and so on and so forth. But yeah, um, that's a touchy subject. I don't really have a strong feeling about that. I like diversity in colleges. But um, I did talk to um, our friend in San Luis Obispo, and even I would admit you know, this notion that some of the SAT testings, if you take cultural <laughs> part out of it, that um, like some African Americans say, like if you if you make those word problems and math problems, uh, you take the racial factors out of there instead of saying, you know, what I'm trying to say, like if, yeah, the if there was one issue, it had to go yeah, by three exactly. grams of coke. 
even if they do that, my impression is that that really doesn't have a big factor because Asian American, it doesn't matter if it's a white culture or African American cultures. Asian American general will do. Orientals well, have an average IQ of 105. Whites have an average IQ of 100. Hispanics in America have an average IQ of 89. Blacks in America have an average IQ of 85. I mean, these results are so obvious when you look at the world. They're just staring at you. And when you break down for IQ, there's no <coughs> racial discrimination that has any meaning because blacks earn above what their IQ says they should because they benefit from affirmative action. Orientals earn in line with their higher than... What IQ than mm. whites have. They Orientals earn a couple of dollars more per hour on average than whites. They have higher uh, household wealth and they have higher credit scores and they live longer Once lives again, I'm an exception to the rule, but yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. And so if when you just look at like average IQ scores, like for instance, the most dangerous country in the world, according to the news in, in the United States over the past five years is Iran. Now, Iran has an average IQ around 86. This is not a dangerous country. They've had a nuclear program for five decades and they still haven't been able to build a bomb. The last time Iran invaded another country when they initiated the war was in the 18th century. A country with an average IQ around 86 is not dangerous. Iraq, average IQ 86. Syria, average IQ around 86. These are not cultures or countries that are terribly dangerous to take over the world. Germany, average IQ 102 dangerous country. Like Germany almost took over the world in World War II and almost took over the world in World War I. How did they do it? They have very high IQ. And when they would take their soldiers, they would take them all from the same communities and the same groups sure. so that they would fight for each other. What do we do in America? We take like a black guy from LA and we put him with a white guy from Seattle and a Latino guy from Texas. They have no camaraderie. You know, the, soldier for soldier, Germans were the far more the best uh, fighting force in World War II because they were but, bunched but, together but, but, but from the they same lost community. Though. They almost won the war. Yes, but but as you know, we, we're not going to take account moral victories. But I mean, nevertheless, they still lost. And I'm sure average uh, IQ of Japanese are probably high. Like Charles Murray, or Murray, however you pronounce yeah, it. Charles Murray, yeah. Yeah, in, in Bell Curve, I remember it was a, such a controversial book in the early 90s because you know, um, and this is something Edward O. Wilson, the professor at Harvard who studied uh, evolutionary biology, basically uh, said that um, just imagine your IQ in your brain as a film negative. So your environment might be a paper, right? So if you grew up in a really good environment, you might have a really nice paper to print your negative picture. Or if your environment, if you grew up in poor neighborhood, your pa quality of paper is not that good. Whether you have a good quality or bad quality, at the end of the day, what you print a paper is based on what you, what you got in your negative. And, and, and basically he was saying um, you're born with a certain amount of intelligence. Yeah, you can give a test, a Raven's Matrices IQ test to an eight-year-old, mm -hmm. and in 15 minutes you can know what are the parameters for what he can achieve. Like you need an IQ north of 110 to graduate from college. You need an IQ north of 120 to be a doctor or a lawyer. So if you have an IQ of 100, you're not going to graduate from college and you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer. But you it's, can it's not do absolute. A, well, you're not, you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer with mm -hmm. an IQ of 100. And, and if you have an IQ of 75 
you know, you're definitely, you're highly unlikely to graduate from high school. You're only suited for very menial jobs. So you can tell right away what a person's parameters. Now, I don't have a genius IQ. My IQ is somewhere around 130. So I'm like in the top 2%. But, you know, I don't have, you know, 150. I don't have the capability of someone with a, with a 150 IQ. You know, when, when you watch um, sports, sometimes you have players that um, their stats are not that wonderful. Mm-hmm. But because, they're, because they contribute in other ways, like how do, you, how do you measure someone with guts or charisma or, because or work ethic or being positive? Those are not really quantifiable qualities. Um, you're not suggesting... If you have a low IQ, that's it. You don't have any future. I mean, I, I'm pe- say, well, I just said you don't have a future as a doctor or a lawyer. Right, like, right. There are many ways you can contribute in life, but if your IQ is 75, you're going to need a lot of supervision, or you're going to get into trouble. And uh, mm. if your IQ is 95, again, there are there are limits to what you can achieve. Like Muhammad Ali's IQ was around 78. Where did you get that? That. Just Google it. What the Muhammad? He was illiterate. He could not read or write. He was a great boxer. He was tremendously flamboyant. Had had great charisma. Sure. But you know, obviously, made a lot of stupid. And verbal looks. dexterity too. And verbal dexterity, um, and you know, made a lot of stupid life choices, as you would expect with someone with a, with that low <coughs> IQ. So he made, you know, perhaps was the greatest sportsman of the 20th century, and you know, perhaps was the you know one of the top 10 cultural icons in the United States in the last 50 years. So, so you can you, obviously you, have a tremendous uh, effect, you know, on life. But you, you, you have to admit, like, maybe you don't have a high IQ, but maybe people have other things like, I, I don't know exactly what these things mean, but I've heard things like emotional IQ, um, you know. If, if, you, if your IQ is 75, no matter how much emotional IQ you have, <laughs> right. you're, you're, not, you're unlikely to have much family stability and to make good choices. You're going to need a lot of super, supervision. But like, take charisma. You know, obviously, blacks have more of it than any other group. Like, they're disproportionately dominant amongst popular culture superstars. Yeah. And, like, you just look on TV... <laughs> There's a Japanese-American sports anchor in, in Los Angeles, and he's the first Japanese-American anchor. Yeah. And he is so boring to watch because right. Orientals just don't have much. They have the least charisma of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the racial groups, and blacks have the most. Blacks are on TV. Yeah. They're delivering the sports news, <clears throat> um, entertainment, stand-up comedy. Uh, they have tremendous charisma. You know, they... Uh, because they evolved in Africa where you didn't have to put in a lot of work to find food because you're near the equator, food was plentiful, the women would get the food and the men would sit around and talk. <laughs> and so they evolved right. to be the big entertaining man. Like African black men usually are more uh, attractive than black women because they evolved so that the big guy who was the most entertaining would have the most kids. He would have the most access to other women. Oriental is the very opposite. They evolved in very cold temperatures, close, you know, closer to the, uh, the, the the North Pole, and so it demanded a tremendous amount of uh, group cohesion mm-hmm. to survive the winter. They had to do a tremendous amount of planning ahead to survive the winter, and 
charisma and storytelling and entertaining people didn't really count for a whole heck of a lot for right. much of Oriental history. So they, they evolved very distinct peoples. And whites grew up, evolved in, in cold temperatures where they had to cooperate, but they were more sp spread out. They, weren't, they don't have the group cohesion and the conformity of Oriental culture. They instead They definitely have the population density the way it is in Asia, that's for sure. And right, uh, so, the, so whites are much less conformist right. than Orientals, and, and uh, they're much more adventurous. So look, you know, um, I have no problem with this conversation, but I'm sure you, you talk about this stuff and you must uh, probably wrote stuff on, on uh, social network. What, what has been the reaction to what you say? Oh, people are aghast and appalled and, you know, they just use put downs. They call me a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, which is a funny thing to call an author. I don't, I, I, you know, I got to say, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think you're racist at all. Um, I, I think you're very brave to say some other thing because I, I, I will, I will say that, um, I've said stuff like that before in the past. Um, but you know, um, like I'm a follower of a black preacher and an NFL star called Reggie White. Reggie White to me articulates my views on race. This was a great defensive end, a former of Philadelphia Eagles, he and, Philadelphia uh, Eagles uh, and the Green uh, Bay Packers. Packer. And this is what he said, and I agree with 100% what this black preacher and NFL star Reggie White said on race. He said, why did God create us differently? Why did God make me black and you white? Why did God make the next guy Korean and the next guy Asian and the other guy Hispanic? Why did God create the Indian? Well, it's interesting to know why. When you look at the black race, black people are very gifted in what we call worship and celebration. A lot of us like to dance. If you go to black churches, you see people jumping up and down because they really get into it. White people were blessed with the gift of structure and organization. You guys do a good job of building businesses and things of that nature, and you know how to tap into money pretty much better than a lot of people around the world. Hispanics are gifted in family structure. You can see a Hispanic person. They can put 20 or, 20, 20 or 30 people in one home. When you look at Asians, the Asians are very gifted in creation, creativity, and inventions. So when you put us all together, what does it do? It forms a complete image of God. God made us different because he was trying to create himself. He was trying to form himself. And then we got kind of knuckleheaded and kind of pushed everything aside. So I see different peoples tend to have different gifts. You know how uh, international economy where um, people in Latin America will make um, bananas because they have a competitive advantage making this mm -hmm. banana, right? And in Silicon Valley, for whatever reason, we have Silicon Valley, they make computers. It makes no sense for people in Silicon Valley trying to grow banana any more than people trying to create Silicon Valley down in Latin America. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but people do things that they're good at. Right. And uh, I think if I'm get, um, <laughs> Rich is saying that every race is different. They're good at some things. They're not good at other things. And um, we should accept our differences. I, I think why some people get sensitive, um, basically, you know, um, I think there are many black people reject the whole IQ testing in general um, and um, treat it like a secondary citizen and in, uh, as an inferior group. I think that's why they're, they're resentful of that. And believe me, I've said some terrible stuff about that whole IQ stuff. And um, 
I mean, isn't it interesting? Here you are, you know, a veteran of the pornography industry, yeah. who makes the most, you know, offensive comedy routines, and yet, you know, you were like so sensitive, you know. Well, no, like I mean, you're, <clears throat> you just because you don't want to be written out of polite society, you don't want to be destroyed, you don't want people to hurt you, so you're always like, oh, no, no, uh, look, I, I've been to other podcasts. And I've said some a lot of racist stuff too. It's just that I don't want to have a show where we, we're just so biased. I, I want to give some balance. So if I'm on another show, I'm the racist, right? I'll, I'll say all kinds of terrible stuff. <coughs> um, there are things the Asians do so much better than other race. But I have to say, there's things that black people do that like I, I just marvel. But it is borderline racist thing for me to say because things that black people do well especially black men i have to say it's mainly the athletic stuff that i just marvel like when i see lebron james of the world and michael jordan uh barry bonds and things like that i mean i'm not giving credit to people like my friend fred who is like computer genius i don't know any of that stuff but uh if I'm being completely honest, I, I do think stereotypes are, types are not lies. It's exaggeration of truth. And growing up, I will say that for most part, except for my friend and his family, most of the other black kids in classes, they didn't do it well. I, I will, I'll be honest with you. Like, I sometimes wonder, like, why did they have so much trouble with the calculus class? I mean, I wasn't, by any means, I was a good, like the best student. But it's a culture thing, too, because most Asians don't think Oh, at least in where I'm from in Japan, they don't. We don't think if you're good at math, not because you're smart. We think because you worked hard at it. It's like you work, you work really hard, and math. You notice a pattern. Like in science and math, you notice a pattern, right? Like, mm -hmm. and 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 it, it, I just wonder, like, is it because they're not smart enough, or they just didn't grow up in an environment like they didn't take education? Seriously, or maybe they weren't giving uh, equal opportunity. I, I have no idea, but I will say that uh, I did notice like they seem to have a difficult time with math and stuff. Well, these are all things you can test. For instance, mm -hmm. you can take children who are adopted mm -hmm. and you can look at their life results. How do they do? And their life results are in line with their biological parents, not with the parents who adopt them. You can take a black kid and you mm -hmm. can raise him in an upper class white home and his life results will be in a line with what his biological parents did you can look at different siblings so the same parents and with siblings there's often a 20 iq point difference between different siblings and the ones with the lower iq will have a shorter life will be more likely to get in trouble uh with, with, with crime they'll be more likely to have early sexual experiences they'll be more likely to get stds they'll be more likely to have uh, family instability and uh, to to have uh, lower income, and uh, the siblings with a higher IQ will have the opposite. They will they will wait to to have sex. They'll be less likely to get STDs. They'll have more family stability. They'll have more income, and uh, and then the different races revert towards the mean. So if you've got a like, why do you know blacks often when they succeed they want to move as far away from other blacks as possible? because there, there's this thing called reversion towards the mean. So a black with a 120 IQ, his kids will start reverting towards a mean of 85, which is the black American average IQ. While an Oriental with a 120 IQ, his kids will revert towards a mean of 105. 
So it creates very different cultures. And so the United States could not have been built with a different genetic component of people. The United States of America would not be the United States of America if it was primarily Chinese. It would be a very different country. And if the United States of America was primarily Latino, it would not be the United States of America. Sure. If the United States of America was primarily black, it would not be the United States of America. United States of America could only have been built and created by the product of people from who evolved in Northern Europe. Because um, like Swedes, mm. Swedes, Swedish American has life results pretty similar to a Swede. Yeah. Uh, a Japanese American has life results pretty similar to a to someone from Japan. People actually don't assimilate, only in the most superficial ways. Orientals go on to have Oriental-style life results no matter how many generations they live in the United States. Sure. Same with whites, same with blacks, and same with Latino. Latino isn't really a race, it's just a language. But if you look at Latin America, countries where the populations have the highest percentage of European stock, the countries with the highest average IQ and the highest GNP. So Chile is the most European of all the Latin American countries, and it has the highest average GNP <coughs> and the most prosperous country, yeah. second Argentina. And uh, you take people from different parts of Mexico, if they're coming from a part of Mexico where they're primarily native stock, you know, they're, they're Indian from, from Mexico area, they're going to have low IQs, low, low uh, economic production. If they're of European stock, they're going to have life results aligned with the uh, Europeans. Well, you know, um, um, once again, being devil's advocate, they, they, I, I think they get. Um, how would I say this? Yeah, you carry the show for one minute. I'm going to take a break. Well, I'll, I'll hold it. All right, we're back. Um, I, I guess basically, I'm, I'm trying to be fair with them, but I, I think the fear is this whole genetic determinism, and you know, like. They're afraid that if, if this, you know what I'm trying to say, look, basically people are going to say if they have low IQ and there's no hope for them, why waste money on education on them because no amount of education is going to change their lives. And that sort of thinking that frightened those people. But but I will say that it's hard to argue with those test results because I, I do look at those. And it's or, or just your own life experience. I mean, yeah. we, we all have life experience. And so there are two different things here. There are the facts on the ground, and then what are the social policy implications? So I have many friends who agree with everything I've said factually, but, but then, then they, would they would then recommend socialism to resolve those inequalities that nature dishes out. Yeah. So you can, you can take these, these facts, and you can go either in a socialist direction or a capitalist direction. So the facts don't dictate what then social policy should be. Because, you know, um, you mentioned Sweden, and I was in, living in Sweden for three months. Eugenics started in Sweden, and that was a policy that uh, Hitler and people like that followed during World War II. And, um, uh, yeah, and, and eugenics was much more influential in the United States and in Protestant Europe than it ever was under Hitler in Germany. So eugenics gets tied to the Nazis, <coughs> but the Nazis practiced eugenics much less than the United States and Northern Europe. And I think eugenics is an excellent idea. I think that people should have to have a license before they're allowed to have kids. I think all kids at age 11 should be given <coughs> birth control 
and then only when they have proven themselves likely to be good fit parents should they be allowed to have kids. So if you have three generations on welfare, I don't think you should be allowed to have kids. I think if you get food stamps, you should not be allowed to have kids. If you get wealth, this is then policy implications. The, pol the facts don't necessarily go in this direction. They could just as well go towards socialism. But I want people to think about we should have, li we have require licenses for driving a car. You should have to have a license for having kids. Because what about all these generations of, of, of families that are on welfare, that are bleeding the system? And uh, you know, frequently criminals. If you if you've got a felony conviction, you shouldn't be allowed to have kids. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Three generations of imbeciles yeah, is enough. Yeah, and um, I, I there was a Supreme Court case where this, um, I mean, lack of better word, retarded lady want to have a children, yeah, yeah. and they uh, basically said you can't you yeah. cannot have a lot of kids. They 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 forced and they had their saying in the ruling was three generations of imbeciles is enough, and they forced her to be uh, sterilized. Sterilized, yeah. And the the alternative is to just offer a one thousand dollar bribe for every IQ point you are below one hundred if you will agree to be sterilized. So if you've got a 75 IQ, $25,000, that's one way to do it. I don't think people with IQs below 100 should be allowed to have kids in the United States of America. You want to move overseas, you know, go burden some other system. But we got way too many people, you know, the people with the lowest IQ are often having the most kids. You know, we've got, you know, men out there well, who uh, that, that, 30 that, different kids. That, 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 is, that is a fact because... Um, People with a higher education tend to have a knowledge about reproductive system and, and birth control and things like that. And uh, this is true. That as countries get richer, they tend to have less kids because the whole notion in the past was more kids means more wealth because when you get old, hopefully the kids will take, you, take care of you on your farm. But um, that notion is changing. And in fact, most industrial countries are declining, their population is declining, like Japan. Their biggest problem is like one of the biggest problems. Their population is declining. Uh, small. Um, it's true for Europe. They're not growing up. Well, there's only one exception. Industrial country that have a, a population growth is United States. We have. And that's because we're importing so many low IQ Latinos. So well, Jesus. We, <laughs> like well. say Jesus because it's a harsh truth. But the, you mm -hmm. can look at the statistics. The average. Uh, according to many studies, the average is out. The average Hispanic IQ in the United There's States. There's always exceptions to the rule, but of course yeah. there are exceptions to the rule. But the people who come here illegally are not doctors and rocket scientists from Mexico. Mexico right. has doctors and scientists, but they're not the ones who are coming here illegally. Sure. The ones who are coming here illegally are the short, squat people of native Indian origin who have who are very low achievers. Like mm -hmm. uh, Hispanics <coughs> are the majority of the population in California and they're just unbelievably low achieving it doesn't make them bad people it's just the way that evolution evolved you know they work in car washes and they clean houses but very rarely are they doctors and lawyers and so what kind of nation do we want do but we, you know the, the every year our mm. average IQ gets lower and lower because we've got this invasion of low IQ people coming here illegally right 
And I'm not attacking you, but but what you're saying, it's almost what Herbert Spencer was talking about. He was a social Darwinist, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm totally down with that. So I'm, I'm down with genetics, uh, eugenics, and uh, not with every application. I'm, I'm down with the idea of exploring how we can encourage people who have high IQs and are productive citizens, not criminals. I don't want criminals reproducing whether they have high IQs or low IQs. So you, but you're not suggesting that the, if if there's uh, f- uh, families of low IQ or maybe retarded people, you 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 mean to tell me if you're in, I'm not saying dictator, maybe you're a benevolent dictator, you pass a policy where you force them not to have kids. Yeah, I would. I would require every if I was. Mm-hmm. The, the dictator of the United States of America and I would require that every child be given mandatory birth control at age 11 yeah you know one of those shots where you can't you know have kids for another five years I've forgotten nor planned or something like yeah. that and only when they've proven that they're likely to be good parents should they then be allowed to have kids and part of that would be an IQ north of 100 and uh, no criminal record and uh, no record of uh, you know making disability claims and you know other <coughs> social pathologies. And we should subsidize uh, people who are high achieving, like Steve Jobs. You know, wouldn't it be, Steve Jobs? Wouldn't it be wonderful if he'd left behind you know sperm that we could make more people like him? All the people who have made great <coughs> contributions to civilization have been high IQ people. You know, IQs in the top one two percent. People with, you know, Muhammad Ali is a great fighter, but he didn't make, you know, great contributions to society beyond the entertainment factor. I I have to admit uh, what you're saying. I I, I do catch myself because um, there's a policy in Silicon Valley. I I keep forgetting there is this immigration policy. Like if you invest X amount of money, like a million dollars, you could come here. But to me, I always thought, why not? Import Im- have immigrants with, you know, their their PhD in robotic or something, or they have a very high IQ. I, I think I I have to admit I do I don't have a problem if you want to import people with talent, and IQ and an educational background. I I think I I don't have a problem with that at all because in, in ultimately we benefit from people like that. Yeah, like and I'll be lying if I'll be lying if I didn't believe in that. You know, um, if you can, if you can, if you could come to this country with a lot of money, you're willing to invest to create business. Welcome to America, but um, if I'm being truthful, if you're an extremely good-looking person, I, you know, I don't want to say that's a talent, but that's a good. That's quote. a lovely thing to have. Like, yeah. who would you rather look at? Someone who's ugly and deformed and comes from generations of ugly, deformed people, or someone who's who's beautiful and and who. What is the racial type that every every group <coughs> aspires to uh, mate with? It's white women. Uh, black men, when they get money and the opportunity, want to get with white women. Oriental men, when they have money and, and uh, opportunity, want to get with white women. So this doesn't make whites a superior race, but I'm just stating obvious facts of life that somehow in private conversation we can talk about, but in public, oh no, you shouldn't say these things. It it, it is it is a um, it is an uncomfortable subject matter, and it, I, I'm just I'm just trying to be fair because in other podcasts, I'm I'm the Luke Ford. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like I'll I'll say this, but I say in such a ridiculous language that people know that I'm just being crazy, but. 
raised. That's the only way you can. Uh, the only people who are allowed to get away with saying these truths are comics in the United States of America and the Western world. And sometimes you don't get away either. And, and even then, you don't always get and away. With Obama's it. half. Uh, uh, you know, black people say Obama is the black president, but. Um, I remember this this uh, economic historian talk about if you give the breakdown, who were, where does most of the president's background come from? A lot of them is like uh, Germany, Netherlands, but mostly UK area, like a Northern Europeans. Yeah. And some people say, well, you have Obama, so that's Africa. Yeah, that's maybe half of it. But if you look at his white background, it's the same white area, like. Uh, Germany, Eisenhower, uh, and Netherlands, you know, all the FB, uh, uh, Roosevelt's, but it's mainly like the Northern European part, and you just, you have to um, say, like, what is it about that region that able to... They produce a particular type of civilization, such as the United States of America. The If you take the 100 most important people or 1,000 most important people in <laughs> United States history... history. I'm not sure any of them are of Chinese origin or Korean origin or Japanese origin. They're virtually all white from Northern European origin. They produced a particular culture. Japan could not be produced by Mexicans or blacks or by whites. Yeah. Japan depends on, on, Japanese. Uh, on Japanese and every genetic group produces a, a particular culture. But And also what's another universal rule is that as soon as you have uh, racial diversity in one geographic area they don't get along like whether it's israel and palestinians you know it's a fight to the death in in los angeles los angeles has the least social trust of any major city in the united states because it's the most racially diverse you look at the the, the cities where there's the highest rates of philanthropy and the highest rates of good neighborliness it's c cities that are 95 percent white so people like to stick to their own and and racial diversity destroys trust and social capital between people but you know there's a p p people like edward glasser i think he is a professor at harvard he studied in uh, urban economics basically he specialized in cities and why new york city is amazing because you have so many different ethnic groups so the Chinese will learn something that Jewish people are doing that they are not doing. They copy those practices. And maybe Jews will watch something about Italians during that, that they're not doing. So this collision of different ethnic groups like learning from each other, at least people like that believe that diversity is what created wealth in New York City. Um, that's not to say that there are parts in the world, places like Middle East, ethnic groups create conflicts. So uh, there was this guy, Robert Putnam, who's a left-wing uh, sociologist mm -hmm. at, at Harvard who wrote a very famous book called Bowling Alone. And then he wanted to uh, understand the effect of racial diversity. And so he did a study, and he was terribly upset to find out that ethnic diversity causes significant problems by diminishing trust between people. <laughs> so he kept it quiet for 10 years until he could figure out a way to spin it before he published it. But uh, people can just Google Robert Putnam's research. Basically, when, let's say, you've got a city or a, a neighborhood that's all white or yeah. all oriental, they trust each other. 
And but you take a neighborhood that's tremendously uh, racially diverse, they don't cooperate and they don't trust each other, and people stay home and watch TV. So, do you, do you think it's is that a trust or there's like certain cultural shorthand that people already understand? You don't have to explain them. Yeah, like, that's that's part of trust. Like Orientals and whites have different norms. So you know it's. Um, like you don't have to explain to them, you yeah, know. Like people yeah. have jargons, and right. you know, right. and it's maybe it's a like a different ethnic religious right. group thing where it's understood. Like Japanese right. will never raise their voices, right. most of them, and they know uh, how to. Every group have a, a certain etiquette that you have to follow through, and I guess you could say mistrust or ability to work with different groups. But if you don't know the rules maybe misunderstanding pr creates conflicts and so on and it it does and and doesn't mean that one group's bad or uh, you know and another group's better like for instance Jews are much more emotionally expressive than uh, white anglo-saxon protestants and much more uh, likely to to yell and to be loud than uh, japanese americans sure and and blacks there's a work of schmoozing which is uh, right uh, right Yiddish, jewish right? yeah, yeah. For, 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 for talking jews tend to be very expressive and like blacks tend to be even more expressive than jews and and so you know there were reasons why there used to be restaurants and hotels that said no jews allowed and it wasn't just that they were stupid the people who did that there's a certain kind of behavior that Jews are more likely to engage in than white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are different behaviors that Orientals engage in than Jews, than whites, than sure. Latinos and blacks. And so I strongly believe that people should have freedom of association. People should be able to hire just who they want. Think how much conflict it causes when you have racial diversity in the workplace because they have completely different norms. They have completely different ways of communicating and expressing things. And if you're all of the same group, you just get along and it's just much more cohesive and there's much more stress. But when you have all these different racial groups, it, it uh, creates tremendous uh, stresses on a, on a community or on a workplace and, and on a country. What, did you th what do you think about, um, uh, we're gonna finish this, uh, what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri? This is, Ferguson is just the symptom that blacks and whites look at the w world completely differently. Different. Like blacks and whites are relating to what's going on in, in Ferguson completely differently. We, you know, we experience the world differently. Yeah. It's not just that we have opinions about it, we experience the world differently because we're different people and we have different norms and we have different abilities. And, and in some things, you know, blacks, you know, they're much more charisma, they're much more social than white people, they're much more outgoing. Um, they they go to more parties. Yeah. Um, they're they're much more expressive. Uh, they're just you know whites uh, compared to blacks much more restrained. But compared to Orientals, blacks are much more outgoing and go to more parties and you know much more expressive. So we're all different peoples and we all have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, that's absolutely that's absolutely true. There's strengths and weaknesses, and um, you know, um, I, I gotta say, look, um, you're you're always honest guy. Um, I'm sure some people feel uncomfortable in public. I I always thought it's amusing because I, my mood swings back and forth. I mean, there's times I remember reading Charles Murray's book, like, oh yeah, this seems so obvious, you know. But um, um, it's one of those things, like it. What can you do? We live in USA. You know, it's not like one group is going to leave. This is going to be a perpetual problem. And like even Obama, 
you would think he was he would he was going to talk about the race thing, but even for him, I think it's just a difficult subject to talk. I I just think this is going to be a problem for America until the day America ceases to exist. And um, it never lasts this way for long. There are no multiracial countries that go on that way for a long time. These things always get resolved um, pretty much by genocide. I'm sorry to be a downer, but eventually there's going to be genocide. Like when Hispanics are the dominant group in the United States of America. Yeah. You know, do you think they're going to want to be paying, you know, for all the old white people who are retiring? You know, they're going to dominate. They're going to change <coughs> names of cities to Hispanic names. And, you know, there's, there's going to be war eventually. So you're not going to find blacks, whites, Latinos, Orientals in the same geographic locale living peacefully. And it won't just be riots. It will be genocide. Can I give you like, so in adult business, you know, Mies Commission in the 80s, Christian Coalition trying to shut down. I couldn't imagine 20 years ago what really hurt the adult business is the internet because it was beyond imagination. I didn't even know that was a possibility. Um, you know, you're saying <laughs> genocide. Wow, you used the G word. Um, but it, I, I just think life is full of surprises. It always, there's always something that I didn't foresee because I can't see everything in the future. Uh, I mean, in a scary, dangerous way, maybe that's the way it might resolve, Luke. But I, I just think life is full of surprises. They, we might, there might be more peaceful ways. Uh, I don't know if solutions are the right word, but um, I mean, how about this? I, I think a lot of interracial things are really changing notion of race too. You know, like look at America compared to now and 200 years ago. It's really the, 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 the if you take a common average look of America, it's brown, more brown so now, right? So. Maybe marrying other race will get rid of the differences eventually. Yeah, yeah. You really think that's going to happen? I mean, well, I, 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 I know I don't, you want I don't to say know. something I, hopeful, I, but it, it's it's I'm, not going to happen. We're not going to get rid of the differences. There's there's always going to be tragedy and conflict, and and eventually it becomes uh, open battle. But I I also talk to Kurtzman in in all these terrible things that are happening in the world, but you can't argue with the numbers. Things are better now. I mean, sure number of people who are dying from malnutrition, people are getting cured by tuberculosis, malaria, uh, you know, dying at the, at the birth. If you compare the number to say 10, 15, 20, 30 years, it's hard to argue things are better. You know, if you watch news all the time, it doesn't seem like it, but it's hard to argue with the number that think things are better. Um, you know, less people are getting killed by uh, AIDS uh malnutrition and things like that so you know robert malthus who is the father of dismal science economics predicted that uh, because population growth is uh growing at such a rate that we're not capable of providing enough food well one thing he couldn't predict was scientific uh, innovation and advances in biology too so I'm not saying what you're saying is it's 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 uh, you've been completely honest you're not being malicious and I, and I don't think you're racist um, but I'm just saying there's th there might be things in future that we couldn't predict that it wasn't available. Um, maybe this unrelated to what we were talking. I, I read this um, professor in Japan, 
main advance in the robotic, and he's saying like in maybe 30 years, more people will be interested in having sex with robot. It's it doesn't seem possible now because all the sex toys and things I've seen seem ridiculous. But you never know how much advances. But this part in the article was shocking to me. In Brazil, they're creating these mosquitoes. Um, genetically modified mosquitoes are uh, sterile. So they're going around uh, mating with uh, female ones, and they're producing sterile uh, offspring. Well, they're not able to produce. So um, they're literally getting rid of the mosquito by fucking, really. That's what it happens. So, um, who does it say that maybe, God, this sounds like almost like a science fiction, you make these very attractive men and women, and people like attractive men and women, but they're s sterile. Sterile. I mean, that, I guess that's a one crazy scientific way of getting rid of, uh, if you make these people so attractive that people who are capable of reproducing only having sex with them, but they're not reproducing, that sounds like it doesn't sound like possible, but in, in like a science fiction way, I don't know, maybe in 100 years, maybe that's possible, you know, maybe, maybe people with low IQ, they can't resist attractive women, you know, but if they're sterile, maybe that's another way to do it, you know, so maybe there's some scientific solution to resolve things that you're concerned about. I Yeah, that'd be excellent. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I don't care what people say about Luke. Luke is very honest, and um, I mean, I in spirit, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, higher IQ you have, you make better decisions. Even the guy who produced the showrunner for um, Survivor said people with low IQ have a bad credit. I mean, I heard this in this very popular podcast, and people with low IQ tend to make a bad decisions, and they don't have a healthier offspring because they don't attract attractive women and. You know, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Let me just bounce one other thing. The ability to have a moral conscience largely depends on having an IQ because conscience is abstract thinking, and abstract thinking requires a higher IQ. So morality <laughs> depends on me being able to put myself in your mm -hmm. shoes or asking what would be the results if everyone acted like I'm sure. about to act or how would that feel what I'm about to do to that person? How would that feel for him? That all requires abstract thought. So you'll see among low IQ people doing horrible things, they'll likely whip out a phone and video, you know, tape it and you know, show people. While high IQ people, if they do something horrible, they'll try to keep it quiet. Yeah. Like the Nazis did not promote that they were committing genocide against the Jews. They tried to keep that quiet. They tried to hide it because the Nazis, for whatever their ills, they were very high IQ people. So. And it's funny hearing that for you because you're Orthodox Jew and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you you see that you know in life, you know low IQ people just do you know horrible vicious crimes and uh, you know don't take a lot of care with trying to get away with it because they're stupid. And part of being stupid is you don't put yourself in other people's shoes sure. and you don't see the consequences of what you're doing. If you've got a higher IQ, you're more likely to be able to see the consequences of what you're doing and, and how it will play out in the years ahead. So, Almost like a chess player. Moral conscience and decency largely depend on having 
the ability to have abstract thought, and that requires a higher IQ rather than a lower IQ. Now, some people, uh, let's finish with it. Some, uh, I'll, I'll say it, and you could, I'll let you finish the show by you or whatever other things you want to attach. But I, I, I remember I got um, arguments with my friends because I am a pretty vindictive person. I don't, I, I do believe in revenge and things like that. And and I, I don't know how you feel about it, but to me, you know, like when animals get, like uh, animals are attacked by, let's say, lions, right? And uh, they're, and, and, and uh, parents would try to protect their offspring. But there's a point where parents, if they recognize the offspring's been attacked at the point where they know that they can't survive, the animals just let it go and move on, right? Because they're not gonna die and fight the lion knowing that, that their offspring is just practically dead. Whereas people, we believe in, in well, at least uh, I believe in, in revenge because even if they kill my kid, I still have, believe that I have to wreak vengeance on those people because I, I believe that we ha we're able to do uh, abstract thinking because yes, my kid is dead, but I will still want to commit revenge against you because I need to show the rest of the world that you do something to my kid, this is the consequence. You're gonna suffer of that. So even though my kid is dead, I, I will still commit revenge uh, because animals are not capable of thinking those abstract sins. That's why I have to say, when the Jews went around all over the world and killed people who killed them during World War II, because some people say, like, why, why can't you let it go? It's, it's not about that. The world have to know that there's a consequence for treating us this way. So I, I'm a big supporter of when, you know, when you watch Munich and things like that. Jews are going all over the world and killing those people because it's not like killing will bring those people back, but it's not just to honor those people who were murdered, but to show everyone that you do that. If you fuck with us, you're gonna suffer. And and I think revenge is a very very important part, not not just for some sick sadistic satisfaction, but there's a re rational right, right. Re there's a rational reason why you have to do that. And right, right. So, so animals are not capable of thinking like that. Right. So a high IQ way of going about that is you take out the persons who hurt your family or your group. You yeah. take them out. A low IQ thing is to go onto La Cienega Boulevard here, start robbing people at gunpoint because you don't like their race. Yeah. You know, a lot of like friends of mine got held up at gunpoint just a few blocks away. Uh, you know, by a couple of uh, thugs, you know, with, with yeah. a gun. That's low IQ crime. What you're talking about is high IQ crime where you hunt down the people who hurt you. You don't just go out on the street and start robbing people yeah. at gunpoint. So the society can survive, you know, people who do the high IQ crimes that you're talking yeah. about. Society can't survive if uh, just constantly people are going out on the street and holding people up at gunpoint. And so the lower society's average IQ gets, the more you get of the low IQ crime, and uh, society just gets stupider. That's why we have so many more stupid movies now than ever before. It's because, pandering to that dumb masses. Because our l average IQ is dropping, and the number one group that goes to movies and movie theaters these days and will see a movie endless number of times is Latino teenagers. So more and more of these like big blockbuster films are aimed at Latino teenagers. The films that win Oscars, primarily it's whites who go to them. It's, it's a difference in, in IQ now, Latino teenagers. You don't think it's a different taste? 
It's taste, but it's the taste that's shaped by IQ. Now, it doesn't make Latino teenagers bad because they want to go see stupid yeah. movies, but it's a, you can see the effect on the culture is our average IQ keeps dropping, and it keeps dropping year after year after year. I'm really curious what the uh, listener is going to say after hearing this. <laughs> oh, they'll be angry. <laughs> some, some people, some, I mean, it depends on who you are, I guess. Um, a liberal white person might be offended by the whole thing. If you're a black person, you're probably offended. And there's going to be other people that completely agree with what we say. But um, like I said, I, I didn't know we were going to meet up today. I'm glad you met up with me last minute. But it's a emotional and intellectual roller coaster today, uh, this two hours, because you know I have a lot of faults, <laughs> back credit and whatnot. I'm trying to make, um, I'm, tr I'm really trying to uh, bounce back from this. It's, 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 it's definitely have really been rough two years not having a regular job. So um, I need I need to change it soon. But look, thanks for doing this. I I, I think uh, we're all of you. You're very honest, and uh, you you always uh, willing to talk about uncomfortable subject matter, and uh, it's always better to have an honest talk in the world. And I'm sure some people are gonna get angry. And um, you know you could email me at <laughs> dumbyoshi at gmail dot com. And you, you know, if you were looking for look forward, you could find him. And uh, let me know what you think. And um, um, I'm glad I talked tonight with you, even though there's parts that made me feel bad. It, it's it's because of my um, character flaws and the things that need the, for me to change. And believe me, look, you're right. I'm 45 years old, and I hate living the way I'm living right now. But um, it's better to know. And you know, Christian man, and my friend Patrice O'Neill, they're dead. And they're dead. They're dead. So um, obviously, it's better to be alive than dead. Obviously, so I, I have no excuse. I have to make an effort. Um, I'm not making light of those two guys being dead, but I, I need to make a drastic change in my life. So feel feel better tomorrow. Anyway, look. Do you want to promote anything? Website, nothing like that. But, uh, um, you can check out my blog at immoralleader.com. <laughs> yes, immoralleader.com. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Let me know what you guys think. And uh, I appreciate you guys listening to uh, another episode. Thanks.